Take the guesswork out of your cannabis shopping with ECS DNA Kit by Endo Canna Health. I did this years ago and it continues to empower me to get nerdy with my cannabis choices, which you know I like. If you've watched our Cannabis Legalization News podcast, did you know that right now you can save 25% off your DNA test at endodna.com? That's E-N-D-O-D-N-A.com and use promo code POD25. That is P-O-D, the number two, the number five. Your purchase includes the EndoDNA Collection Kit. Endo Decoded Report, Personalized Cannabinoid and Terpene Suggestion, Endo Aligned Product Matching in Your State, Suggested Dosage Guidelines, and Optimum Methods of Administration. Once you know your personal ECS data, you can shop Endo supplements tailored specifically for you. And right now, Endo DNA is celebrating their new patent with a BOGO offer on their Afeca Soft Gels lineup. Since so many of you struggle with sleep, I want to highlight Afeca Unwind created to support healthy sleep cycles using a patented proprietary formula of hemp-derived CBD, terpenes, and essential oils. If sleep is eluding you, sweet dreams are made of this. So buy one, get one, my friend. You can shop online at endodna.com. And don't forget promo code POD25 at checkout to save 25% on your DNA test kit. What's up, everyone? It is 2 p.m. on a Wednesday afternoon, which means you're tuning in to Cannabis Legalization News. I'm producer Lauren. Today, we're going to be speaking with cannabis lawyer out in New York, Elliot Choi. But first, we do have to get into a little bit of cannabis news. So, Tom and Miggy, what's happening? What's going on in the news? Happy Wednesday. Happy Wednesday. Yeah. Wednesday. (laughs) Yeah. Likes and subscribes if you're actually tuning into Cannabis Legalization News. And the news out of Illinois this week was uh, there's some some rules regarding the tiebreakers, but then you really can't find those rules on the IDPFR website. Oh, Some wow. Called and they're like, hey, where are these? Uh, where's those? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. Hey, I, I think we uh, should also, because you kind of got your own personal news that I'm not sure if you want to expand upon no, it, but you no, want to talk about the, You no. don't want to talk about it? No, no, no. But I did get a call. And okay. I, got, I, I've, uh, I should have prompted this earlier. But like, uh, tell them what's going on in Seattle. I'm going to pull up, bring up uh, a question that we got from a viewer. Oh, right on. Oh, well, you mean as far as the protest goes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The police oh. free zones. They took over. Yeah, well, they they took over uh, I, I, somewhere in the central uh, Capitol Hill area, uh, pretty much like a block uh, in front of a police precinct. They took over. So, I mean, Black Lives Matter. So, yeah, this is the systemic racism. Here, let me share this with you guys. Uh, this is crazy, and it just goes back to more of the point about racism here. As geopolitical congressman saying the killing of the marijuana user George Floyd doesn't deserve protests. I mean, just based off of marijuana. That, you know? was that literally that wasn't like a joke headline, was it? That wasn't the Onion. All right, that was the biggest news of the week. Uh, that was that marijuana moment. Yeah, yeah, that was marijuana moment. Marijuana moment. Sitting there reporting, GOP congressman says killing of marijuana user George Floyd. What's that dated? Uh. 22 hours ago. 22 hours ago. So uh, June, let's mark it, dude. June 10th, 2020. Pervasive prejudice toward the cannabis plant still on Capitol Hill at the highest power in the country. Yeah. It's an uphill battle. And it's all the the, the, back to that systematic racism I've been talking about. You know, uh, one of these, my ex-shipmates wanted to argue with me about how there's no such thing as systematic racism. I'm like... That statement right there proves it. Like this guy's thinking ahead of time that this guy's possibly a criminal for being a pothead or whatever the f- he wants to say. Yeah, you know? I get it. And then I saw one of these things. I'm actually going to eventually do a uh, Second Amendment uh, guns, marijuana, medical card uh, show. I just I'm not I'm not I, I support the Second Amendment. I just I'm not the biggest uh, gun guy out there. And so I've just kind of been putting it off. And also the gun people are very passionate about the issues. So I'm like, all right, well, if we don't do that, concept, well, aren't, they, are, are, are they passionate? Because look, if the NRA doesn't stand up for people's rights, I mean, oh no, they, it's first. Like, so the, when you buy a gun, you need to fill out this ATF form. And one of the check boxes on the ATF form is, do you use illegal drugs? And then there's another thing underneath it that says marijuana still counts. And I'm like, okay, why is my fifth amendment right against self-incrimination a contingent of my Second Amendment right to bear arms. 
So how come I'm supposed to incriminate? And there's a lawsuit on it. And so I'm like, I like this, this legal angle on it. And then I, I looked and then there's uh, some very conciliatory. And by that, I mean, like, they really don't care about the marijuana user's right to use a, a gun because he's a bad person. Like, you know, yeah. it's like, don't make bad decisions. Well, it just kind of makes me think that the people that by and large enjoy guns must not enjoy cannabis or at least the ones that enjoy guns that are making the rules. And and then again, this is why the Marijuana Tax Stamp Act of 1937 was found to be unconstitutional was because it was a violation of your Fifth Amendment. So for me to be able to exercise my Second Amendment right to defend myself, if I want to go down the block to a Walmart to buy a, a handgun, I'm going to have to fill out this form. And then I'm going to have to incriminate myself because I'm a medical patient or just a, a, an adult in a legal state like you and me are. Yeah. Why is my Fifth Amendment right being infringed? And why is my sixth? I'm sorry, my, my Second Amendment right being infringed? Uh, because cannabis is commercial regulation. And that's the power Congress used. It's a regulation in interstate commerce is prohibited just like they prohibited heroin. I mean, that's that's so unconstitutional. And then you look at the actual data regarding who's hurt, black and brown people. Yeah, but you know, but why isn't the NRA, was it NRA? No, NRA upset about that. Yeah, yeah. 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 Upset about this this form that is self-incriminating. So it's, it's violating the Fifth Amendment because you have to essentially check a box that says you are a federal crime or you're committing a federal crime. And, and then, it's, it's also infringing your Second Amendment right, which I thought they were supposed to defend. I really would like to know if like the people that showed up the Capitol steps with like rifles and shit, are they mad about this? Have they even tried? You know, yeah. advocates need to... How come those guys aren't showing up to legalize uh, cannabis in, in the streets of New York, for example? Don't forget to stick around. We're going to be talking to a, uh, an attorney with uh, Vincente Cedarberg out of New York regarding New York cannabis legalization news. It's going to be fascinating. We'll also tell you how to win a book. <laughs> so what else you got going on, bro? Uh, you know, I am in the process of uh, taking care of a lawsuit. So I actually have to get back into court tomorrow uh, to defend the good rights of people to farm hemp in Illinois, uh, which has right. you know, been infringed by some non-home rural community. Uh, hopefully it'll be great. And then uh, we are just waiting and waiting and waiting to see, get any like semblance on when are we going to get winners and losers? Because my phone has been pretty quiet. Uh, in in this as everybody's just sitting there. So you're actually like, going to go to a courtroom and debate and argue for these people's rights to grow hemp in their county or whatever? That's right. Uh, actually, it's it's. I'm going to be right here, probably <laughs> speaking into this microphone. Uh, I, I don't even think, because it's a call-in, uh, but mm. I, I could, in theory, drive to this rural courthouse. Uh, I'd have to wake up at, like, you know, sunrise at 5 a.m. and, like, get in the car by, like, 6.30 to do it. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense considering I can do it by phone and be way more prepared. So, yeah, we have a very cogent, excellent argument. But in litigation, I tell everybody this all the time because I'm so confident that we're supposed to win this. Like I'm, it's, I've, I've just racked my brain to say, like, well, what can go wrong on this? Because that's a lot of what being a litigator is, is, you know, CYA. You, you ever heard those like a CYA? Yeah, yeah cover your ass. Cover your ass. Yeah. And so, like, you know, that's that's what a lot of lawyering is, covering your ass. And so um, I just don't get it. And so, like, you know how statutes work? You know what retroactive application is? Yeah, it's, it's references behind or before. Right. right. And so, like, Illinois law is a good example, right? Um, Illinois legalized cannabis. I'm sorry. Yeah, cannabis with the CRTA, the Cannabis Regulation and Tax Act last year. And did they retroactively say everybody who was arrested for an ounce or less in the past, uh, they were expunged? Yes, they did, because they actually had to write that into the law. If they wouldn't mm -hmm. have done that, it wouldn't have retroactively applied. And so uh, that's that's one of the rules of statutory construction. Shout out for rules of statutory construction. I mean, you guys tuned in expecting us to be doing <laughs> dab rips. Wrong show. But I, I do want to get to Daniel's question. Yeah. So Daniel is a medical patient from Illinois, and he wrote me and he asked, uh, do you see Illinois changing the law that makes medical patients pick one dispensary to use? Yes, I do. Because it actually was in the bill that uh, was defeated uh, a couple weeks ago now in late May regarding not only um, uh, the tie breaking stuff, which turns out is now going to be done through administrative rule. But also it uh, got rid of that one dispensary match. And so, I mean, 
you know how sometimes people like say that the adult use or the legal cannabis industry is kind of like a cartel yeah yeah okay so now imagine that you could only go to one store so like you're a medical patient and your card your card links you to a specific dispensary that's so, pretty wild yeah so like i can go with my card there's one place in the whole state i can go yeah right and so, but now you can change it but then you have to change it before you can go and they're like well it's not that onerous i'm like well why do i have to why do i have yeah. to any particular dispensary at all you know but again marijuana always gets the raw edit of the deal when it comes to any legislation because they're always over legislating they're over you know constricting you know and I think a lot of it has to do with fear at the federal government period, you know, uh, we, yeah, the fear is real against this plant. And like, you know, people, people think that people use it are drug addicts. And then you, you look at the people that are using it and they're actually really, really scientific. They're talking about things like terpenes and trichomes and like very, very advanced, uh, organic chemistry chemicals and their interactions with your body and what they can do for you. And like how the, the high works and why an indica makes you sleepy. All these things are not, simplistic and, you know? and, and, and not just that but even like uh, look at you and i so you're you're a high functioning lawyer uh i i run a cal lab you know we don't talk about much what i do but I, I i measurement i work in dc to 50 gigahertz rf stuff you know and uh but we're not like special like cases of like people who just are pervious to the, the effects of pot you know we just are too Americans, people that said, hey, I need to keep doing shit for my life to have a life, whatever, you know, that we're breaking that stoner stigma, which is still persistent. Right. That stoner stigma is out there and it's persistent and it's going to probably come up in the social equity aspect of New York's cannabis legalization. So let's oh, start talking. history. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the history. Yeah. Let's bring Elliot on. Hey, Elliot, what's going on? Hey guys, thanks for having me. Truly appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Can you tell us a little bit about the work you're doing out in New York? Yeah, sure. So uh, I work at Vicente Cedarburg. Uh, we're a national law firm that focuses on the cannabis industry. So we also advise in the hemp and CBD space. Um, the firm was formed back in 2010 by the, the founding partners, Brian Vicente, Christian Cedarburg, Josh Kaplan. Um, you know, so we've been in, you know, we've been a law firm, a cannabis law firm from since 2010. And I think that's as pretty as old as you can get in the industry. Um, those three partners uh, were instrumental in kind of getting Amendment 64 drafted and passed out there. So, you know, legalizing the, the first state to legalize adult use. Um, you know, people in our employees in our Massachusetts office had an instrumental hand in question four, getting that, that get, getting adult use legalized in uh, Massachusetts. Um, and, you know, we do a lot of, you know, regulatory and, and law drafting elsewhere. And so, you know, we've had our hands kind of in, in markets all over the country. Um, you know, we also do work in the psilocybin space, including drafting the uh, recent decriminalization bill that was passed in Denver. So that kind of gives you a, a flavor of kind of the industries are firm services. And, you know, we do everything, we're full service. We do everything from like licensing, any formation, fundraising, corporate transactions to the, uh, the uh, big exit MSOs. Um, and so me personally, I'm a native New Yorker. I was born out in Queens, grew up on Long Island. And the, uh, you know, the firm opened up a New York branch uh, last year in anticipation of adult legalization in New York. You know, unfortunately it didn't happen, you know, which we'll talk a little bit more in detail. Um, but otherwise, you know, I've been trying to get familiar with the cannabis industry and drinking from the fire hose, as they say. Yes, and, you know, in the last year plus, I've kind of it felt like dog years and I've learned a ton. Oh, my gosh. Doesn't it? Like you're just yeah. it. Uh, I remember when a fire hose hit me because like Illinois legalized uh, approximately a year ago. And so uh, you get tired and like I get headaches because like you're just learning all this new stuff so much of it and it just keeps coming in you're learning like new terms and terms and terms for months and then you start to get it i mean like you've gone through a few rodeos so now was the illinois license round your first uh comprehensive type licensing round that you had to get through uh yeah i helped with the last uh new jersey round too but yeah the uh the illinois license round was was pretty intense as well yeah, and so is the New Jersey round. Uh, we, we could talk about New Jersey, but I really want to talk about New York. I mean, they're so close together. And then it's mm -hmm. New Yorker from Queens. Uh, how did the, so like, where is New York right now uh, with its legalization? If you could give us some evolutionary history on that. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Tom. Um, so and I just want to, in light of everything that's going on right now, I think it's important to kind of revisit the decriminalization history of New York. Um, there's a lot of 
features that happen there that you know I think will be impactful here. So um, you know, we all all of us here listening know that the, the US war on drugs is always and always will be a racial war. You know, starting with kind of the opium laws against the Chinese immigrants in San Francisco late in eighteen hundreds, Aslinger's, you know, reefer madness period against the Mexican immigrants, and then Nixon's war on drugs against black people and and the hippies. Um, you know, obviously still going on today, never ending. And, you know, despite the national mood of, you know, what I call like cannabis acceptance, you know, we still see disproportionate arrests. You know, black people are three to four times more likely to get arrested for cannabis possession, even though all of us know that, you know, cannabis is not uh, an issue about your color of your skin. It crosses the political aisle and, you know, all of us enjoy cannabis the same. So there's no reason for, you know, for, for black people and Latinx people to be disproportionately arrested. And, and as people know, you know, historically in New York, the situation was even more fucked up, especially here in New York City. Um, and so, you know, I think it's important to kind of understand the history here and kind of, you know, how we got to that place. Um, you know, just as a quick aside for me personally, I just want to mention that a lot of my knowledge here of the, the history of New York legalization comes from Doug Green. And for those outside New York, Doug Green was a was a huge activist, advocate here. He spent decades pushing for cannabis reform in New York. Um, you know, the movement wouldn't be today where it was without him. Um, unfortunately, just uh, just over a year ago, he tragically passed away. And so he lost one of our big advocates here in New York. And so I just wanted to give him a shout out, it just seemed timely. Um, nice. All right, so going back to New York. Um, so last year, I don't know if you guys saw in the headlines, you know, New York passed a decriminalization law. I mean, you know, big headlines. You know, some said maybe it didn't go far enough. Others thought, you know, it was a step in the right direction. Um, but this was kind of the compromise for not getting adult use passed. Now, what people don't know is that you know, New York already had a decriminalization law in the books already, going back to 1977. 1977, so we have 42 years of decriminalization in New York. Now, a lot of you guys know the history of stop and frisk and all that stuff that happened here, and you're probably wondering how all that bullshit could happen if there's a law already on the books. Um, so we'll, we'll get to that, but let me let me write up some more with the backstory to that 1977 law, and, and you know, you you'll see what I'm talking about here. So, you know, 1970s, Nix is in power, he's doing his war on drugs, you know, people are getting arrested for cannabis possession. Um, now, out on Long Island, if people are not familiar with New York, the demographic out there is largely white, you know, and the cops are arresting people out there for cannabis possession, and these were white people. And the news articles were focusing on the fact that these were white people getting arrested for cannabis possession. Now, there's one key event, September 1973, Grateful Dead concert at Nassau Coliseum. I'm gonna totally um, go to that concert later. So yeah. what, because like if the Grateful Dead show uh, in Nassau Coliseum in 73 was, that played a role, a positive role in, in cannabis decriminalization for New York. I want to know that fact. Yeah, so here you go, right? Yeah. At this concert, like most music lovers, you know, people you know want their cannabis, right? So lo and behold, 36 white people get arrested for possession, including an off-duty cop. Now, these guys are, have enough cannabis on them that some of these people are looking at three-year jail terms, right? Now, now, this pissed off the white suburbanite community like no other, right? How dare white people's lives get ruined forever for simply trying to enjoy a concert? You know, God forbid they get thrown in jail and that's permanently on their records. So this, this sparked the whole suburban movement. And, you know, four years later, finally in 1977, we get this decriminalization law passed. Um, and so what it did was it decriminalized possession in private. So that left open the loophole in public. And I think you guys all know where this is going. So for a few decades, cannabis possession and arrests decreased. But as we know, kind of, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, especially with, you know, America's David Mayer Giuliani, we had stop and frisk. And what the cops were doing was, was frisking these people, asking them to empty out their pockets. Lo and behold, you have a cannabis joint in there. You pull it out. Oh, now it's in public. Now I can arrest you for cannabis possession. And, oh, and come on. Joints a gram. I know it's like complete yeah. bullshit, um, and so you know New York officials. Some of them tried to rein this in, like Police Commissioner Kelly, 2011, issued a policy saying not to arrest people for cannabis possession in their pockets. The Blasio, 2014, instituted another policy saying you can't arrest people for public cannabis possession. But you know the stats show, and there's too many stats here that it just didn't happen, right? Like 2017, 2018, it was 85 to 90 plus percent of the people arrested for cannabis possession in New York were black people, Latinx people. And they only represent like 31% of the population here. And so it's like, that's out of control. I and mean, we're not talking about a handful of arrests. We're talking about 10,000 plus arrests each of those years. Right. Um, you know, ultimately, we got this 2019 law, which finally decriminalized public possession, um, among other things. It included, uh, Tom, I know you're big on expungement, and included an expungement element as well. Yeah, um, we got in 2019. I mean, my takeaway is- How many ounces? What do they do? Uh, up to 25 grams, and then up to two ounces is uh, essentially decriminalized. Um, so they have an expungement, but you still don't you still have people getting arrested for the plant though? 
Yeah, it's, and I was, I was trying to look this up. The uh, trying to see if there was any stats post that 2019 law going into effect, but I haven't found any. But I'm curious to see kind of what those stats ultimately show, and if in fact you know arrests have gone down proportionally, you know, as we all would hope. Yeah, but you know, your point about how the it's the imbalance of arrests, uh, and uh, and it goes to point to point ending the war on drugs will help alleviate the the systematic racism we do have uh this we have a commenter here this is johnny meyer when we were talking about a rant on guns and he's like his comment is the second amendment advocates is not cannabis it's guns but our point is as soon as you try and get a gun your cannabis rights are taken away your right period is taken away like you're not you're treated a lesser the form the form literally made you self-incriminate so like i'm yeah. trying to get a gun pursuant to my second amendment right uh, you're, you're asking me to incriminate myself in violation of my Fifth Amendment right. Uh, what? You know, but, you know, one of the coolest things that, you know, uh, uh, Elliot brought up. So I did look it up. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, this is the set list from Nassau. <laughs> oh, March 16th, 1973. Uh, one of the most American songs ever was played, uh, Wave That Flag, which I believe became um, U.S. Blues. So like the U.S. Blues, like one of the most quintessential American Grateful Dead songs ever. One of its first time ever played was March 16th, 73 at Nassau. And then a whole bunch of people got arrested. The most un-American thing that ever happened after one of the most American things. Is there a uh, there's a medical in New York? Yeah. So right now uh, we have a medical program only in New York. So there's no there's no uh, adult use market quite yet. so I don't know if you guys want to talk about the medical program or not. Medical a little bit before we yeah, turn sure. our sights as to the uh, adult use and specifically the social equity. But what's the current status of uh, the medical cannabis laws in New York? Um, so we started our medical program in 2014 with the Compassionate Care Act. Uh, there was a licensing around in April 2015. And so currently we got uh, 10 what we call registered organizations in New York. Um, each registered organization can have one manufacturing facility that covers cultivation and production and then four dispensary locations. So right now, New York has authorized 40 medical dispensaries for the whole state, which you can, you guys tell me if you think that's an adequate number. Um, 38 of them look like they're operational. Um, now, you know, there's a lot of feedback on the New York medical program, and you know, a lot of people call it, you know, restrictive and limited. And that's because, you know, there, there are a specific number of conditions, there's limited product types, uh, um, there's no reciprocity with other states currently, and then there's only you're limited to a 30-day supply for your products. So when you say no reciprocity, we're with you there in Illinois. I can't use this, or you can't use yours if you have a, a card from New York. When you said limited on products, do you guys have flour? So right now, there's uh, you know there's no smokable flour in the medical program. The closest they come is you can have um, you know pre-ground dry flour pods that you can vape, but you know, oh, okay, so like a Pax pod. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So dumb though, like, no, and, there's, right. and there's no edibles either. There's there's, there's oh. lozenges and pills and the like, but you can't actually have an edible product. Well, that's fascinating for various reasons, but that's similar with what they did in Florida before they finally had flour. They had like those, uh, you could have like ground flour that would be ready for uh, you know inserting into like one of those vape pens, which I'm thinking about getting for my birthday, uh, one of those vape pens because I. I enjoy joints. It's too wasteful and too much sometimes. It's just, it's too extra. Uh, and I used to have a great flower uh, extractor or like vaporizer. And like these suckers, the, the oil vapes, they don't have the same flavor. And so the flavor that you get from a good flower uh, extra, uh, you know, vaporizer was really, really good. I had one of those volcanoes like 10 years ago. And now I think the technology has really come a long way with the batteries for the portable ones. So I'm really excited of, uh, you know, giving up the pipes. Yeah, the volcanoes are still around, too, in pretty much the same form that you uh, yeah. that you probably had. Yeah, back in college. Yeah. So uh, how many do you guys know how many uh, medical providers there are? Um, so, you know, currently, the I'm not sure there's 40 dispensaries, but registered practitioners. There's yeah. uh, less yes, as of yesterday. The stats on the New York medical website said there's 2,814 people that can prescribe medical cannabis, and there's currently 116,191 certified patients in the program. Oh, wow. That's a lot of patients. Yeah, and I I get those numbers probably jumped uh, with the recent kind of COVID pandemic. How do the numbers or how do the licenses work for medical? Because sometimes the licenses that are started in medical very often evolve into their adult use with some tweaks. 
So how's the license set up in New York's medical cannabis market? So, you know, the, the medical license, you have to got to be vertically integrated. The, uh, the, the adult use market, the proposals at least are, are getting away from vertical integration, actually prohibiting on the adult use side. So one of the kind of details for legalizing adult use that necessarily hasn't been determined yet is what to do with the existing medical um, cannabis companies um, and whether or not they can, you know, switch over to the adult use market. You know, there's concern, obviously, if they're vertically integrated and they have adult use dispensary, that could give that dispensary a leg up on, on the other participants in the market. Um, there's also questions to if, how, and when uh, a medical you know, dispensary could just flip the switch and start selling adult use. Um, so these are still some of the details. And, you know, unfortunately, some of the smaller ones are now kind of on the table. Is yeah. medical tax-free or are you, is there a system for you guys like Illinois? Uh, there's a tax on, on medical. I think it's like a, it's like a 7% excise tax plus there's a sales tax uh, on the products. Fascinating. But then that did happen in Illinois. The medical producers have clearly have a leg up. This is their year to have an absolute monopoly. And then as the – because we still were – uh, at least one month and, and 10 days outside of when we should have had results. So I don't know how much longer that's going to be delayed and continued, but you know, the longer they delay and continue new entrants from coming in, uh, you know, the only players in Illinois' adult market right now are the medical players. And so I don't know how you contemplate, uh, you know, practically speaking, from a legislative standpoint, how can you flip the switch and go from a medical market into an adult use market without really allowing the current medical players to have that leg up you know do you mm -hmm. have any thoughts on that elliot yeah so i think the proposal that been out there is obviously delay the the flipping of the switch until some of the adult use licensees get up and running and obviously that's going to take a little bit of time to, to do all the build outs and the like and you know but that's just kind of one of the options that that are currently on the table another one would be to you know the idea one of the proposals i think it was cuomo's there's a, an idea of a competitive bid process and so, you know, perhaps these medical companies would maybe donate funds to the, the social equity fund or the like, and that could be one way they uh, they get a license, adult use license. You're going to have to be careful. Uh, like when Oregon did theirs, they just turned key. It was, okay, if you're a medical, now you'll devote a portion of your uh, your product to medical, and then you can still be recreational. Here in Washington, they just screwed everybody. They're like, we're going to redo this whole program, you know, because when it was medical, we didn't need licenses. We didn't need... There was no structure so people just said hey i got a bunch of plants i got to open a store i'm your medical provider that was it that was the barrier and then when uh medical or recreation took over so many people uh lost their, their businesses their investments uh like our licensing uh part uh they would get a license secure a position and then there'd be a moratorium you know there's that wave of just getting fucked along the way uh do you guys I, I would think the turnkey is the best solution when it comes to because you're going to have a heads up no matter what the medical is going to have the advantage because you have the experience you have the you know we define it as separation of medical and recreational but all good weeds medical well, <laughs> I, I think what elliot said was makes sense like i mean imagine a staggering of first you do the uh cultivator licenses and awarding the cultivator licenses so because like why would you have dispensaries if you have no product to sell? So the cultivator licenses, and that's a substantial build out because then you actually have to build the farms. And then after you have the farms built, the state goes, fix that, 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 that. And then, you know, it, it's, there's probably going to be a little bit of delay and then you'll get approval. Magically, the stork will bring a whole bunch of clones and then you can go into production. But, uh, you know, one of the one of the fun episodes that I did with my home grow on the channel here was, you know, just showing how long and just an auto flower would take. And so it was from like February 1st through June 1st before you were ready to smoke. Now, add a veg and a clone period on that. It, it could be like five months from the time that you move in the clones until you start to get up to your perpetual harvest yield. So after you'd have them open, you could then do the round of the dispensaries because the dispensary is more like getting a retail outlets shop up. It just has fewer moving pieces, you know. And so if you did it that way uh, and then you'd say like, OK, it's recreational, but then recreational sales won't begin until X. It kind of gives some to the black market there. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of it's a, it's, a, it's a tough question, and there's you know if there was a good solution, I think we've already we've already seen it out there. And I think that brings us to social equity because you know it's a tough question and a good solution, and it's an evolving solution and, and issue in the sense that you know Miggy 
will bring uh, the West Coast perspective of real legacy laws that do go back, like you know, your your firm all the way to 2010, and that's that's when I wrote that book and met Miggy. Um, and so, but from that, you know, just the rules were different. It was just a different game. And so now, as the games evolved, uh, how best can we use the the legal tools that we have to, you know, the legislative tools that we have to not only make a product go from a crime to a lawfully regulated product, but repair the harms that were caused by having it be a crime. And, and I really like how Illinois has set up social equity to really inject it into the license holder itself. Like if you don't have it, you're not going to get it. But we were talking earlier in the green room, uh, Elliot, that what was your what's your take on Illinois' version of social equity, and what would you like to see New York do? Yeah, so look, I think Illinois has got a lot of great features to the program. Um, you know, as you said, you know, earlier before we got on, like the one thing I, I was, you know, a little disappointed to see was that the uh, the social equity applicant point point system for the licensing was zero or twenty five. It was you know you either got zero points or twenty five, and so it wasn't like a sliding scale. And so you know we had a lot of clients who were really coming in committed to social equity. And we were trying to build these narratives around all these things that they were going to do. But ultimately, you know, if 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 everyone's going to get 25 points, you know, and you know, why can necessarily commit yourself to something, you know, that other other companies aren't committing to when you're still getting the same amount of points? So it would be nice to see maybe see like kind of like a sliding scale on there to give the companies that really had like a true kind of social equity twinge a little a little bit of a bump up. Sure. All right. So. Um... Now, turning to the New York draft law, I remember reading it about a year ago, and so I'm just not as expert on it as I was really busy with Illinois. Uh, how does New York's uh, Illinois? I'm sorry. How does New York's cannabis legalization law address social equity? Uh, okay, so thanks, Sam. So you know, there there are two kind of competing bills here in New York. One's uh, we call the CURTA. I guess you call it the CRTA in Illinois, and then the other one's the MURDA. And so CURTA is Cuomo's proposal. Uh, the the MURDA is the uh, the the state legislator's proposal. And so they each kind of just social equity a little differently. Um, and so to give people the background here and as to why adult use hasn't passed in New York, at least last year when seemingly the public support is there, is that there was uh, you know, basically a fight over which social equity you know, program would be implemented and you know, ultimately came down to, you know, among other items, but the tax revenue allocation from the, the, the cannabis taxes. Um, you know, people on the murder side really wanted a specific allocation of percentages to go to a social equity fund, whereas Cuomo's bill had all the funds going into the general state fund. And then mm -hmm. with, with some, you know, promises that some of the funds will come out of the state general fund into a social um, program. Um, you know, so like earlier this year, there was obviously some good momentum for adult use legalization. And, and you know, you know, as we were part of discussions to try to figure out how to, how to kind of bridge that, that, that divide. Um, and then, you know, we had the, the pandemic. And so, you know, that kind of put a wrench in the plans because really it seemed like both sides were going to really kind of entrench into their positions more. You know, I, I see numbers like a $6 billion shortfall in the state budget. So I can't imagine Cuomo is not going to want to take all that revenue. And but obviously, you know, we all know that the, the pandemic has disproportionately impacted these same communities that were disproportionately impacted by the drug war. And so obviously they should be getting those funds, you know, more funds that way. And so, it was, you know, it was hard to see, a, you know, there's still going to be that divide. And then, you know, now we have the Black Lives Matter movement. And so I, you know, it rightfully is putting a, well, people are scrutinizing the social equity provisions in both proposals. And, uh, you know, I can see people wanting to see a lot more there. Um, so, you know, a lot of, a lot of going on here. What's the, uh, the Safer New York Act? Uh, so the Safer New York Act, um, it incorporates a bunch of uh, different, ask, different items in there, um, certain things around kind of police transparency, um, but it also does include a, a cannabis, uh, legalization bill and it's and it's the the murder version the state the state assembly uh version of the bill as opposed to uh, como's version when you say murder is that the name of a the mur murder the mrta yeah, the murder, okay. sorry. the murder and the Kirkta are the two bills that we refer to here so like one of them's going to call it marijuana and the other one's going to call it cannabis yeah, I, mean, I think ultimately they're both going to use cannabis but just to kind of you know so people are just used to calling him eat that and so that's yeah. how, Good. how it developed here New York's got such a wild history because, you know, I always thought it was funny and ironic that High Times was based out of there. And then it was the most strictest state. And I was surprised to learn that you guys decriminalized it in 77. But it doesn't yeah. surprise me when a bunch of housewives get together and figure shit out. So, I, you know, New Yorkers are really, especially New York City people, are really fond of saying that New York City in particular is the largest cannabis market in the world. You know, I think I've seen figures somewhere around like $2 billion a year. Which, oh, wow. you know, you think about it, right? It's like we don't even have a legal adult use market. You know, the, what we call the legacy market here is, is like, a, has all this infrastructure has been working for, you know, decades. And it, you know, there's some real money involved in there. 
Oh yeah, and, and there's some real growers in New York too. You know, you, yeah, yeah. Sour diesel and that come out of New York, or is that more of a land race? I thought it was a land race. Did it? I don't know. I mean, I, I obviously come across it a bunch. I wasn't sure if it, you know, I thought where, that was where New York York's were. Train, but I could be wrong. I mean, no, based I, on my own experience, have, that seems to be correct. <laughs> yeah, I, but they have to have great growers in that city, and and I have never been to New York or bought weed in New York, so I have no idea what an eighth of premium dank goes for in New York City, but I have to admit, uh, it would not surprise me if somebody said 50 to $75, you know? Uh, you can get a little cheap in there probably, depending on, the, you know. Um, so, you know, kind of related to, uh, you know, one of the other issues around adult utilization is, you know, what, what's gonna happen with that legacy market? You know, that, there's a lot of people involved in there and there's, you know, do they come into the light? You know, you know, will they be incentivized enough to do so? And, and I think that's what yeah. you do. I think that's what you, you try to make the law written in such a way where because uh, they already understand the product. And so one of the things that they look for in the scoring of the apps is knowledge and experience in the industry. Uh, and it is in Illinois, at least uh, our version was a confidential uh, licensure process. And so like because it's confidential, you're like, yeah, you know, you know me. I've clearly been running this this borough uh, mm -hmm. for the past 20 years. Um, <laughs> prefer if I didn't have to defend everything with guns anymore, I'll pay some taxes. Uh, and so that would be really nice if they had that opportunity. But then also, I like how Illinois, though, it, you, it is binary points, you either get the social equity points, you don't get the social equity points. But the ways to do it was, you have that ownership and control, like you're giving licenses back into these uh, areas that have been blighted, or the people that have been arrested. So like, by and large, like we were talking earlier in the show, New York was what 80 to 90% black and brown people were arrested for cannabis. Mm. So there you go. You know, you, you're not going to, you're not going to make a racially based regulation, but it's clearly going to be a racially based regulation. It's like, well, that's not the test. The test is where you arrested, not what color of skin are you? And then we have the disproportionately impacted areas, which are the poor areas in, in uh, the state that have had a lot of these arrests reverse engineer that yeah pretty much the same thing you know so if you had these maps in areas that are you know the poorest who are you going to find there right yeah not mm -hmm. the trumps so because that's kind of what, what what illinois does right in the poor areas to get a license uh, the investor has to find someone in that area am i correct they they can there's two ways to get the social equity one's the 51 percent ownership and control for the people that are in the disproportionately impacted areas and that resided there or have been arrested for just the right amount of cannabis, 500 grams to 10. And because less than 10 was decrimmed. So uh, if you have and no that, arrest for anything else, right? Because you have to be just cannabis only. You can't well, uh, not necessarily. Okay. Not necessarily. So like there's there's a way. And, and so like you can still apply, but you'll have to disclose and explain away your criminal record. Well, here in Washington, you can't be ownership if you have a record, even if it's cannabis. Mm, the, ours is not as clear as that. There is an administrative review board and process that if it is the reason why you are denied the license, let's say like you're clearly qualified, you hired, uh, you know, great people to do your application. You had a wonderful team, vision, capital, all that stuff. Uh, and so like you win, but you're disqualified because of your criminal record. You'll get a written ruling as to like why. And then they, they would have to go through all these mitigating factors that you had to have disclosed and then explained and say, no, no, no. Or, or just say, we believe that you are a good fit for this because you have actually rehabilitated yourself and you could send a larger message about our, uh, our criminal justice system. So Illinois built that in. Hmm. Who knows if it's going to work because we're still waiting on scores. Yeah, yeah unfortunately, right? And so, Tom, one thing I saw in the Illinois Social Equity Program that is an always an interesting feature is, you know, the ability for the social equity owner to, to eventually sell, you know, the company the license. Um, right. You know, I saw like, you know, basically after what, maybe two years or so you can sell. And, you know, there really no, was no penalty if you sold to a non-social equity kind of owner. And that's always like kind of an interesting kind of feature to social equity programs. And I know, you know, there's arguments both ways. It's kind of whether or not you should allow these social equity owners to essentially cash out to whoever or if they need to kind of, you know, maintain, maintain that license indefinitely. Well, that, uh, uh, that was, that's an inference. That is what my inference of the reading of the law was as well. Uh, like if you sell it to a non-social equity, so why would they say like you can sell it to a non-social equity and then have consequences if you can't 
not sell it to a non-social equity, right? So yeah. they don't exp expressly say that a social equity license can only be sold to a social equity license, but they do say a social equity license that is sold uh, that gets like a discount. So uh, you didn't pay the $5,000 application, you paid the $2,500 application, and then you sell uh, for $10 million, and you do like do that cashing out. It seems like you can sell it to whomever, provided that, of course, there's license caps. So what do you think about license caps in the New York legislation? Um, so in the proposed legislation, um, you know, there isn't any specified license cap. They kind of they punt that to the eventual regulatory bodies that would be put in place uh, and the like. So, you know, you know, license caps, I think, generally seemingly have created some market inefficiencies where they're in place. Um, so I'm you know, hoping not to see that. The one thing I'll mention there is that, at least in the MRTA, there's language that says that you know there'll be like a that the idea would be to have that 50% more than 50% of adult use licenses would actually go to social equity applicants. Um, so that's kind of a you know kind of a floor as opposed to a cap. Yeah. Well, that's really cool that they have like you know this many of the licenses are earmarked for social equity. But then how do they define the social equity applicant? Um, so there's a criteria, and you know I think the last read of it there was like three prongs. You had to be you know from a disproportionately impacted community, a certain level of uh, you know, below the poverty line and then have been arrested for or have a family member arrested for uh, certain certain offenses. But it seemed to be that you had to hit all three prongs in order to, to qualify. Mm, that sounds it sounds similar, but more restrictive to Illinois uh, elements to social equity. And I'll have to give that another read. Uh, let's talk about uh, New York cannabis legalization news then. So if there are these two competing bills, uh, how close to the finish line do you think either one is? Um, you know, that's a, that's a great question. And, um, you know, I understand that there's a lot of discussions going on right now trying to figure out, you know, the path forward. Um, you know, Cuomo, the state legislators haven't ruled out, you know, legalizing, legalizing this year through a, you know, a special session. I mean, you know, the, there's still, still the opportunity to do that. Um, and so that's kind of, you know, where we're at. Um, and really this, I know, you know, folks within Cuomo's organization uh, and, you know, other, other advocacy groups, you know, they've, they've been engaging with each other and, and they're really trying to listen and, and, you know, address all the concerns and, and you know, do right by uh, by New York here. Um, it's, you know, New York is just like a, you know, it's 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 going to happen in New York. It's just a matter of um, people wanting to do it the, the right way and addressing the right issues. And, you know, honestly, I think that's commendable instead of because, you know, you know, we've seen from other states that, you know, focus on legalization and, and they say that, hey, we'll, we'll fix this all later. You know, well, well, later it takes a long time and maybe never comes. And so, you know, yeah, we have this really here. I think, yeah. Yeah, and that also has the issues with the legacy market, Then I think that's one of the reasons why with California and Washington's kind of cleaned up its act pretty well. But um, the other states out west that had a legacy market, then it would be more difficult to contain because there would be these laws that they would then override the next law. And so they wouldn't necessarily have taken the time. They just kind of did it. So uh, New York is going to be hopefully the second state to legislatively do it. And I like that because then you have a bill and you have a law and, and you can read it and you can understand how it's supposed to work as opposed to what happens in like New York uh, is different than New Jersey, for example, because New Jersey, I thought, has a ballot initiative this fall. And yeah. so ballot initiatives, they put out language, but then they direct the legislature to go, you know, draft it. And yeah. very often that can cause problems like it did in Arizona. So um, it, it'll be really, really cool to see, you know, what bill emerges, but it kind of stinks in the sense that you have a divergence between the houses in the sense the Senate wants the, the Murta and Cuomo wants the Curta. Yeah. And uh, that's, we didn't have that in Illinois. We had unity. So it was like we had the CRTA and our governor didn't have his own plan. He was like, hey, you, you four ladies in, in the, the legislature, what's your plan? That's our plan. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, just, a, just a quick note on the okay. ballot initiative, though. We don't we don't have that process here in New York, so it's it's either through the legislator or or, or we're shadow luck here. Wow. What, uh, Elliot? Is there an estimate for how much it's going to cost to get into the industry, like a low barrier? That's a great question. So you know, I guess the best we can look at is uh, the medical uh, program here. And so to get into that, you had to pay a ten thousand dollar application fee, and then there was also on top of that, you had to put up a two hundred thousand dollar registration fee. You know, that was refunded to you if you didn't get a license, but you had to put up that cash initially. So that was that's, that's two hundred ten different. A lawyer and a consultant to help or consultants. Yeah. yeah. Let's say you're going to be trying to put, uh, you know, build an indoor farm. That's several consultants. Let's say you're going to try to do your um, 
your retail. I'm assuming it's going to be fairly onerous uh, regulation, fairly onerous uh, security, fairly onerous uh, zoning restrictions. That could really push the price up. Illinois didn't have a $200,000, hey, just let me have that money. You know, yeah, so, so, uh, so for the medical program, hopefully, you know, won't be that crazy for the you know adult use. But and then obviously we all hope that the social equity applicants, you know, get a waiver of that fee or a really reduced, you know, fee. Well, even with that, that. two hundred, is do you also have to already have the facility? Do you already have to have the location? Because I mean, you're just layering on money on top. Yeah, of that. so you got to have like you know you know rights to the facility. You don't necessarily have to have like a signed lease, and you don't have to necessarily be paying rent. So that was kind of a you know a good feature there. I know that really kind of adds the cost to for certain applicants. Yeah. And that's something Illinois learned from their, their difference between medical to uh, adult use rounds. It created an opportunity for landlords to kind of jack uh, people and be like, oh, you want that? That'll be a $25,000 um, retainer bonus or something like that. And so uh, in the Illinois round, and you might want to try to like, you know, talk to the people in, is it Albany? Is that where your capital is? Yeah, it's Albany. Okay, talking to people in Albany and say like, hey, uh, you might want to consider having a six month window in a BLS region. And so like in Illinois, the, the dispensary applications are matched per BLS Bureau of Labor Statistics region, as opposed to XYZ PDQ street. And so uh, because of that, then you don't have that opportunity. So like you win a license for that region and then you go get the address within six months after you win. Oh, I like, yeah, I like this idea of like, you know, licensing or qualifying applicants before you make them go spend all that money, just so people know that, hey, I'm going to get a license. You know, now I just need a location, right? As opposed to, right. or now I just need funding as opposed to like, hey, give me money, take on the risk of me not getting it. Um, well, yeah, that's, that's tough. I mean, because like the, with the application, and I'm assuming it's going to be, New York's going to be the same as all the other states. Your application is condition precedent of your license. And so the license regulatory regime is very, very thorough and strict. And then you're being compared to everybody else. And so you actually have like unlimited, limited page numbers. So our, our applications, and I'm assuming yours were too, were like over a thousand pages. And you're, yeah. you're looking at that and you're like, man. And so when you have to hire high quality lawyers and, and consultants and maybe even some political lobbyists uh, and gosh knows what else is involved before all that money you have to pay to the state, it gets expensive to make that, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's just an expensive product. Uh, and that, uh, do you see you know, it being monopolized because of the, the high entry there, Elliot? Well, I mean, look, you, you know, you, you don't want to make it too, too high barrier and you, you see limited operations and then, you know, more people get their market share quickly and, and it just doesn't really develop into a, a well-working market. And that's something we really want to avoid here in New York. Right. Yeah. So but you want to do it safely and regulated, and regulated, you know. So you're going to have uh, pure supply and no diversion. However, you know that's that's that balancing act. And so, like, I think Illinois did pretty good. You know, if you're budgeting between half a million and a million for a dispensary, or like five-ish million for a, a 1,250 plant or a 5,000 square foot craft grow, um, can it, can they make the industry cheaper? Sure, they can do what Oklahoma did. But even then, in Oklahoma, you're if you go too cheap, you're going to be broke in anything. Like if you're not adequately capitalized in your industry, you risk the you risk your business. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. What's the uh, culture like out there, Elliot? I mean, as far as you guys are bordered in Canada, you guys used to have high times, but uh, uh, like the the show High Maintenance, right? You got the the guy on the bike, he delivers to the buildings. I imagine you have a lot of black market like that. Is there a culture like, uh, half baked? Took yeah, look, there's a there's a great cannabis culture here in New York. I mean, like I said, like you know, we're way too proud talking about how big the market here is, and you know, people have been doing this stuff for decades, and you know, they've established you know channels and networks and the like, and you know, that's why you know it's such a hard it's hard issue here because there's just so many people that have been involved for so long that you know have their kind of their view of uh you know where they should be going and you know who should be who should be benefiting ultimately. Um, so just kind of on that point, you know, one thing I know we've talked about here is the social equity and, you know, the need to kind of give up, to give the social equity applicants a leg up within the industry. Um, you know, one thing I like to kind of, I, you know, I know this is not a unique view, but, you know, I think we really, you know, we really need to start thinking outside of the cannabis industry when it comes to kind of social equity. Um, you know, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think we need to limit to who benefits from, you know, cannabis legalization to only those people who then decide to enter the cannabis market, you know, you know, give these money, give the funds back to those communities, um, you know, Look, we know who's been arrested, who's, you know, for these crimes. I mean, 
God forbid I use the word, you know, maybe these guys deserve reparations. You know, we, we threw them in jail. And now, now we're saying, hey, hey, this is totally legal. And we know who those people are, right? And so I, it's I not going to be that hard. Like with the 13th Amendment, it's got a glaring hole in it, you know, because it, it mentions crime or like punishment uh, because there will be no slavery except for a punishment of a crime. If I had the 13th Amendment in front of me, uh, I could read it verbatim. But, you know, there, there is that uh, exception that so if they could just make you a criminal. Uh, and then what do they do? They just started making them criminals. You know, it's it's ridiculous. And uh, and it's been going on for far too long. And so I'm I'm thrilled that the cannabis industry is, again, it's it was the right thing to do 10 years ago. And it's the right thing to do today. It's just even righter. You know, it's it's more correct. And so I'm, I'm excited about that type of, um, you know, wind of the back or wind of the sails or in, or in our back kind of mentality that we have in the industry. But uh Trying to fight for it so that it can be accessible to people is also really, really difficult because you have immense greed, immense greed and, and hike barriers to entry. So, I mean, it's a, it is a fine tightrope. But as for other areas of the law, uh, Elliot, have you done anything besides cannabis law? Uh, so, you know, before I came to Vicente, I was a, a corporate transactional lawyer here in New York. Oh, so, was, you know, one of, one of many of those. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, you got a due diligence checklist, huh? Yeah, you know, look, uh, yeah, so uh, I brought all that experience here, and I'm trying to, you know, it's it's kind of like uh, it's corporate law on steroids, and then yeah, uh, it's 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 wild. That's uh, oh, it is, and I, I geek out about it because I've uh, quite enjoyed uh, being a fairly, you know, because I did a lot of financial litigation, uh, and then small amounts of transactional stuff, usually like workout agreements and stuff. But you know, seeing because I, I became a stockbroker after law school, so I've always kind of had that. Uh, business bent to it, seeing like how much capitalism and greed is involved and money is involved. And then like Illinois just invents this new class of like business called a social equity business. Like you get these points or you don't get these points. You either are or you're not. And so it's created all these business formation and operational issues that are unique. Uh, yeah. And, uh, it's been a lot of fun. Like I haven't gotten any 10 day notices regarding the stuff that I put into my operating agreements, you know, uh, and why not? You know, I, I, so I guess that's okay. Right. <laughs> like I, I tell people that, you know, you know, we don't have get to be a lot of be creative in the legal industry, but within the cannabis industry, like you said, like, you know, everything's novel, everything's new and, and you got to kind of got to be creative, figure it out and draft the right language. Yeah. I mean, and once we agree on how, to legalize it, right? Everybody wants to say deschedule, unschedule, whatever. Mm -hmm. I say lab regulation is plant regulation. That's all we need. <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Hey, Elliot, thank you so much for joining us today. Ah, thanks for having me, guys. Where can we go to find or follow you if we have any more questions about cannabis in New York? Uh, obviously, our firm has a webpage, VicenteCedarburg.com. Um, you know, my, you can find me on LinkedIn, um, and I'll share some of our, you know, Twitter, Instagram, and, and all that good stuff, and I guess post it down in the comments or whatever YouTube people do. Yeah, we'll add them to the description. And Tom, where cool. can people uh, learn more about the war on drugs? Oh, people learn more about the war on drugs. Uh, probably CannabisLegalizationNews.com, or you can go to CannabisIndustryLawyer.com, and... Uh, very cool. email me. Uh, yeah, I, I, I still I have a website for the, the publishing company I owned in law school uh, that I'll put back up. I've just been busy. Uh, you're so, gonna give a book away? What's that? About a book? I thought you're gonna give a book away. Oh, I'll give a book away to somebody who emails me at tom at collateralbase.com and then you know ask me a question so we could read it on the air next uh, week and then uh, I could also mail them out a copy of the, the book that I wrote. Oh, awesome. Well, thanks for tuning in, everyone. Make sure you like and subscribe to keep up with all cannabis legalization news. We will see you on Sunday. Thanks. Yeah.